you know, I have a sort of, this is an example actually from 20 odd years ago. I had, had a kid that, that was working, uh, there was a squad, I was working in, in Australia, there was a squad of athletes, sprint athletes, you know, pretty good caliber from probably 10 2 to, to 10 8 uh, in, in the squad. Um, so they, they were good caliber athletes. One of the athletes was probably the most powerful athlete in the group by a good margin. Um, but he was a 1079 100 meter runner, huh. yeah, one of the slow, slow guys in the group. But he had this phenomenal power qualities. And you put him in a double leg drop jump, he'd destroy everybody. But when we did it in a single leg, um, he had these you know, very weak, mushy feet. <laughs> and he would collapse and would get destroyed by the 10 2 guys in the single leg sub. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. Um, and I probably didn't have the, um, at that point, and we, you know, the idea of how much you could train your feet and, and some of these other options we could have done with that. So, um, you know, and I kind of have some, some regrets for his career because he had these qualities, but he had a he had a rate-limiting step. That was power physiologist and strength coach Angus Ross speaking on the difference between double and single leg jump stiffness and how it translates into sprinting. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to another episode of the Just Live Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks so much for being here today. It's great to have you, and we have a guest I'm thrilled to have back on the show. He was on about a year and a half ago, and that is Angus Ross, who is a strength physiologist and strength coach at High Performance Sport New Zealand. And so I've had about a year and a half to cook up, to think up some follow-up questions for this guy. Uh, just one of my favorite guys to talk to, not only because he's brilliant and has a wide base of knowledge and athletes he's worked with, but also because he just he asks a lot of the same questions that I do. Uh, he, in addition to his work in New Zealand, uh, he has a PhD from University of Queensland. He's done work uh, in Australia, and Angus has also been a Winter Olympian, an elite athlete in his own right. And I think that's where a lot of those, uh, with all of us who have competed on a high level, I think that's where a lot of those questions start and where they come from. And so, it's just so refreshing to talk with somebody who you feel like your your mind is always going the same direction with where you're trying to get at, which is how do we make athletes as fast as and powerful as possible? And, and what let's make sure we've left no stone unturned in that process. And and so one of the things uh, the training means that is probably most unfamiliar to me, to be honest, is has always been super maximal training, eccentric training. Uh, I feel like as an athlete myself, elastic athlete, I always got that more or less through plyometric type work. And uh, super maximal is something I probably have had a little less personal experience with. It's something I haven't used in my athletes a whole lot. I, I'm not, if you watch my videos and articles, you're not going to read uh, anecdotes and case studies from Joel Smith's super maximal methods. And so I defer to guys, uh, great strength coaches in the field, such as Cal Dietz, and then on this episode, Angus Ross. And so, as with any training method, eccentric training is just one tool for the job. So, I, we talk about these things, but it's just one tool. Uh, but learning how it fits into the entire training scheme, the yearly periodization, its unique benefits versus plyometrics or something that also is very high tension is really valuable. So, those are some of the things that Angus is going to go into today. Uh, really, the topic list is some of his new happenings. Uh, reactive strength and stiffness in sprinting. So what you heard in that little teaser in the beginning, which is 
honestly just fascinating and it fits in with things like previous episodes with Alex Natera. Uh, things are coming full circle here on the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Check that one out too. You're going to really, a lot of things will connect there, especially if you work with track and field athletes and, and even team sport too, but just to understand the how and the why of why each of these special strength exercises are in a program. Um, and don't just have something in just to have it in because it looks cool. There's a reason for everything. Uh, we're also going to talk about the role of maximal isometric or overcoming exercise versus the plyometric stimulus, who and when and how uh, in terms of benefits there. Uh, we're going to talk about ways Angus has been experimenting with a more frequent alternation of the training stimulus. So doing uh, training that is fundamentally different every week. Like what what happens there? Who responds? Who doesn't? Um, and, and as always, like in that relentless pursuit of trying to find the optimal training means, it's not every athlete's going to respond to the same thing. So understanding a little bit more why that's the case, uh, we're going to go into there. We're also going to talk a little bit about fascial-driven athletes versus muscle-driven athletes and some of the specific training and ways that those two different athletes and those paradigms uh, might be optimized. And a lot of stuff that actually goes back to last week's episode with Randy Huntington. So if you check that one out, this week's going to complement a lot of that. And uh, I mean, it's just, I, I, I'm just like, like a kid in the candy shop talking to these great coaches, Randy Huntington and Angus Ross. And and hearing things come together is just such a it's such a blessing for me on this side of the microphone and reflecting in, in my own training and athletes I've worked with. Uh, we're also going to talk about Angus's thoughts on velocity-based training as well as electro uh, electro stimulation and strength performance. So tons of great topics, things that really come full circle with a lot of what's been on this episode in the past that answers uh, questions that I've had. And Angus is just always great to talk to he's one of my favorite guys to have on so i'm really excited to get you episode 104 for his second appearance let's get on to the show angus welcome back to the show thanks for being here again yeah thanks very much i'm looking forward to it i've enjoyed some of your uh your podcasts over the last little while so um yeah always good to chat and i think that's a privilege and you know i'd probably get as much out of it by having to synthesize some thoughts on some of the stuff too so it's, it's great yeah. Well, hey, I that means a lot to me uh, that that you're kind of saying that about the the episodes, and uh, it's definitely been a, a huge blessing on my part just to put all this together, speaking to great coaches like yourself. And it's been shoot like seventy episodes since we uh, did this uh, last. So, uh, what's been new in in the world of Angus Ross in the last year and a half? Uh, anything with uh, anything new in terms of athletics or uh, anything along those uh, realms? I think just just. Um... Yeah, a few new athletes I've sort of taken on, and, and uh, you know, obviously there's new learnings in that space. I've, I've um, yeah, probably just uh, subtle changes in the way we're doing things. You know, I, we all keep learning. Um, you know, I've been playing more with, um, you know, we've talked about some of the Jay, Jay Schrader stuff and playing with some concepts there, um, you know, isometric work. But, but nothing that's you know entirely novel, I don't think. Um, but yeah, I've accessed to some, some different uh, equipment, which I probably didn't have access to before, which has been helpful. So uh, yeah, I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. And, and probably some changes in the way I periodize things, but all of them you know relatively subtle, and um, but I think improved on probably where I was you know, a year ago whenever we last spoke. So yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, uh, yeah, that's one thing I just think is so cool. Every time I talk to you is, you're always learning like you're asking me about and you had recommended me getting uh, Jerome Simeon on the show I'm so happy I took your advice <laughs> and, uh, just uh, like that's something I really respect about you and and I'm excited to talk um, I almost would call the first half of the questions I have eccentric training to be continued from uh, the last time we talked and uh, yeah. so one of the things you said it really piqued my interest and in, and be it uh, eccentric training or plyometrics just the idea of stiffness you had mentioned uh, an athlete who lacks stiffness could benefit from e eccentric training. I think you maybe even give an example of a hurdler last time. Uh, but what are some basic ways to test and assess that from maybe more than just a looking at it, but like a, a, a quantitative perspective of to see if this athlete needs uh, increased stiffness in their sport movement? Yeah, so there's, there's quite a few ways in a lab-based measure, which you know are relatively complex and complicated, which... Uh, aren't necessarily going to be accessible to a lot of people. Uh, so that might involve digitization or um, some of these oscillation tests. But so, so what I view, what we typically use, however, is um, field tests, uh, which have, have a you know, high correlation or relationship to these lab-based measures. So one of the ones um, is a drop jump, um, which probably most people have access to either a, a 
jump mat or a um, high-speed camera to get ground contact time and flight time. Um, so if you have ground contact time, flight time, and body mass, there's a uh, paper by, I think it's the Marin Group, it's Delo et al. 2004. Um, and I can send you that if you want to put that on show notes or anything. Um, so so they have, you know, there's a, there's a calculation in there which you can just whack straight into Excel and, uh, you know, away you go. Um, if you can get those other metrics. Um, so that's quite good. You can do that some single leg or double leg, and we've done both, um, trying to assess uh, differences between legs uh, for, for obviously um, sprint or jump athletes. Um, the other one, which I think is, again, from the Marin uh, group, uh, the French group there, is uh, just using um, sprint data itself. And if you've got, um, you know, I think that, the, that calculation requires uh, speed, um, ground contact time, flight time, and again, probably weight. Um, and then there's, again, there's a, there's a calculation you can copy straight out of whack it into Excel and you've got, you've got yourself a spreadsheet. And I think actually Marin may put out a spreadsheet themselves, which they, they put on Twitter maybe a year ago or so uh, with some of that stuff in it. So it's, it's pretty straightforward to get access to that stuff. And, and those guys have done a great job, I reckon, in terms of making it, I know you've had them on, on here in your own podcast, so, um, making the stuff accessible to, to the world and, and, the, and the wider public, I guess, um, the coaches that are interested. So, yeah, with those things, you, you, you know, the time you collect a bit of data, you'll see um, those that are, that are stiff and those that aren't. And, and it largely relates to um, the biggest influence on, on the calculation is, is the, the ground contact time. Uh, so people that get off the ground quickly, generally are stiffer, no, no rocket science there. And, and we know from, um, in most cases, if you get off the ground quickly, your stride rate is quicker. So... You know, if you work down the line, somebody's got the turnover machine, they've probably got stuff. Uh, so, yeah, and vice versa, if somebody's very compliant, uh, they're likely to be more ground contact based, uh, long stride length. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you can quantify it, but then the, the, the old iometer um, sort of test of, of how they like, perform will, will give you a lot of that metrics. But if you're trying to get subtle changes and assess subtle changes, I think those dropped up and um, that, that, those, that Marin calculation, I guess, Marin et al. 2005, um, have provided that, that contact, that, that uh, calculation. Is, um, yeah, there's certainly ways of getting um, more hard data, I guess, in that space that, that's, that's useful. Uh, how close do you think that is to like something like a simple RSI? So it's just a simple reactive strength index test. Uh, like if someone gets pretty good on that, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good test, but it, what it, it won't give you stiffness per se, um, because that'll give you it's almost a power measure that is what that gives you the how quickly you produce and how high you jump. Um, so I, I really like that as a generic measure of um, a athleticism or, or elasticity, um, but it's not stiffness per se. So you, know, the, you obviously have the um, but that, that said, that probably will relate to performance in a an applied task more so than stiffness will, but it might not tease out the, the different uh, bits and pieces. Um, so, yeah, if they if they achieve a good RSI through a very small contact time, then they're probably stiff. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not exactly the same. But it, but it possibly is more relative to to general performance anyway. Sure. Do you think? Uh, and one of the other things as you were met talking through that, and I was kind of thinking about this was uh, kind of like the idea of a specificity, like specific stiffness. So like a sprinter. Would a sprinter or a, a different athlete um, have different uh, stiffness needs that you would be looking for relative to what they're trying to do in their event or a specific discipline? <clears throat> yep, yep. So, um, yeah, I have a sort of, this is an example actually from 20 odd years ago. I had, had a kid that, that was working, uh, there was a squad, I was working in, in Australia, there was a squad of athletes, sprint athletes, you know, pretty good caliber from probably 10-2 to 10-8 uh, in, in the squad. Um, so they were good caliber athletes. Um, one of the athletes was probably the most powerful athlete in the group by a good margin, um, but he was a 1079 100 meter runner. Huh. Yeah, one of the slow, slow guys in the group, but he had this phenomenal power qualities. And you put him in a double leg drop jump, he'd destroy everybody. Huh. Um, but when we did anything single leg, um, he had these you know, very weak, mushy feet, <laughs> and he would collapse and would get destroyed by the 10 2 guys in the single leg stuff. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me, um, and I probably didn't have the um, at that point, and you know, the idea of hey, how much you can train your feet and, and some of these other options that we could have done with that. So, um, 
you know, and I kind of have some some regrets for his career because he had these qualities, but he had a he had a rate limiting step, and I think, um, you know, he was he was leaking energy through his feet, and so when you put him on a single leg, single support, he didn't have that strength to, to be able to deliver it quickly. Um, and yeah, I think we let him down. You know, an ultimate. You know, he probably was a who's to say he wasn't a 10, 10 flat guy if, if we had all that sorted out. You know, like, um, and that's that's uh, you know. It's not that we did it on purpose, but we didn't probably have the, the wherewithal to, to, to address that the way we should have. Uh, yeah, that's that is fascinating to me. And one of the things that uh, I was kind of thinking about too, as you were going through that, was uh, like I, I I don't know if this was your work that I had read this in. It was somewhere. It may have been your work. It may have been a, a some a Brett Contreras kind of write up or roundup in sports science. But the idea of like vertical stiffness and horizontal stiffness not necessarily being the same thing. Uh, but I, 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 what's your thoughts on that? And the, the single leg, double leg, that's the first time I'd heard that, but it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, look, I, I'm not sure there is such a thing as, as, as vertical and horizontal stiffness as the quality of the leg spring. Um, so I, I understand what they're trying to say, that, that in a certain plane you might have, um, you know, might not be as stiff or reactive, you know, in hip extension versus, you know, uh, maybe a, a knee, knee and ankle extension. I understand that, but but stiffness is a, is a quality of the of the spring itself um, or the lead. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm a little bit uneasy with that as, as an idea. Uh, but but I but certainly um, we know people have um, strengths in, in, in horizontal or vertical, and, and I guess that relates a little bit to the there's a you know some of those Marin or it might be a repeat, it might be the primary author paper with um, showing that some of these ten six guys. Um, producing as much power and force as the 10-2 guys, but they don't produce in the right direction. And, you know, perhaps there's the argument there that they are, they're putting it vertically or making more breaking forces or they're not, you know, able to have their horizontal. And maybe there is a, um, you know, stiffness for want of a better word, horizontal component there. But, um, yeah, I just think that's a little bit messy as a, as a concept. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, I understand. Yeah. I understand with that. Yeah, that's something that even my, myself, I was kind of trying to think of and unpack exactly why that might be. I was thinking, you know, like with the horizontal versus vertical, like I was thinking, you know, sprinting, you have more of the, the work, the movement going on in the frontal plane in the foot than jumping and stuff like that. But I really yeah. like just keeping it simple, you know, not trying to, you know, I, I can get way overly complex with things when i let my brain just kind of go and i like the idea of keeping yeah. it simple single double leg what were the things that you think were really at, at play with that guy who is off the charts on double but yet when he goes to single uh, can't really get it done as well do you think it's more specific like calf weakness or uh, what's your thoughts on that yeah well he, he sort of had on those feet just flat feet that would just collapse inwards uh and I just think, yeah, maybe it's calf, maybe there's a whole lot of that, the muscular, you know, the intrinsic muscles of the foot that, it, that we needed to work on. Um, and certainly I, I would approach it differently now. And, you know, like you've, you've had a quite a few people that have addressed the foot on some of your podcasts. And, uh, yeah, had we had some sort of resource like that to, to point it towards, um, you know, and this was the same, the same kid was, he was a dynamite accelerator. Like he could out accelerate anybody in the squad uh, over, you know, 30, 40 meters and then top end when, when the ground contact time and stiffness again becomes this, this real issue, um, he'd get, they'd blow his doors off. And, you know, it wasn't that he didn't have, you know, good structure or good leg length or he had all those things that were, you know, at least the equivalent of his peers, but uh, he wasn't able to get it done uh, at the high speed. And I think, you know, had we had high speed footage, his ground contact times would have been prepared. And, and I think, so yeah, what exactly um, it was in, in the foot, not 100% sure, but, um, yeah, I'm not. I'm certainly not I'm claiming any expertise in that, but I do think we would have um, looked into it more deeply now and tried to address it because it was um, it was quite stark to me, and, it, and it's stupid that I didn't um, do something more about it at the time. But yeah, live and learn. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah, that's yeah. fascinating though. It, it it always makes me think about uh, kind of the chicken or the egg, right? Like if someone yeah. is uh, quote unquote you know weak in a movement, or are they weak, are they sprinting that way because the muscle is weak, or did the muscle and pattern get not as strong because of the way they were running? I think a little bit about 100-meter guys who uh, kind of towards the, the end of the race, like some of the shorter guys especially, they start to get eaten up, and they, they are, they're not really getting eccentric through their glutes. Their footfall isn't quite out uh, as far in front to the point where they're really developing that stiffness. It's kind of underneath and behind and quad-dominant for a lot of people. And anyways, I just kind of wonder how chicken or the egg that is, you know, when those guys don't have that stiffness in the 
the lack of the, the way they ran and all that. Yeah, possibly. Possibly there's, there's an element of that. Um, and for this guy, yeah, he probably did have some core dominance. That said, he had um, great glutes as well, so uh, he certainly could extend his hip uh, at speed. And, and uh, I think, you know, my gut feeling still is that, that it was his feet that let him down. And, um, yeah, that, that if we been a bit more astute about what we were doing, we would have done a better job and he might have might have run professionally for a living rather than becoming a teacher and doing whatever else he ended up doing. Um, you know, a great guy that could have, could have used a bit of, um, bit of help that we were, um, you know, negligent. We just didn't know any better, you know, so that's one of those things you look back on and think, well, well that's something we didn't, uh, didn't do everything we could have done really. Yeah. Even still, I, I just think it's, it's really cool how you've come to that point where, you know, cause a lot of people just look at a double leg RSI and say, Oh, you're, you're a stiff athlete. You're, you know, you're good to go. And I guess, you know, maybe if the guy was like a, just a basketball player and that was it, you know, maybe volleyball and that was it, maybe no one would ever be tested. Yeah. yeah. He would be fine. Yeah. It wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Yeah, that's that's really cool in the specificity. I think it's cool things to think about. It reminded me a little bit too of like what Alex Natero is doing with like the single leg uh, max press into the pins, uh, like a plantar flexion, like the same kind of deal, you know. Totally, and, and I think that stuff would have been would have been good. And I, I think had we had, I mean, that, that Marin paper I mentioned earlier with this the, um, the stiffness from from uh, from sprint data, I'm sure had we had that, that would have shown the same thing as the single leg drop jump showed. And you know, hey. Um, we would have we would have looked, done done things differently, um, perhaps. Uh, but yeah, we just didn't. We didn't. It was it literally was twenty years ago, so we didn't have that IP probably. Then. Yeah. Well, hey, I yeah, I, don't, I can't imagine hardly any of this advanced kind of data and kind of really hacking into those fine points of the sprint uh, cycle was. I mean, people obviously were doing really good, but <laughs> back then, in many respects, but I don't I don't think any yeah, of this stuff was really around. And I think what you're seeing now is. There's greater depth generally. We're not gonna, you, know, you still need the freaks to run the, the nine sixes, the nine sevens, the nine eights. Uh, but there's more guys now. It would seem to me that can run 10, 20, 10, 10, 10 flat um, because you know we are addressing some of these other anomalies and we are understanding um, the little bits and pieces that, that maybe we weren't. There's more video video footage and there's more data, so there's certainly more opportunity uh, for people to to be to be better. And and they're probably more clean athletes now than there were. 20, 30 years ago too, in terms of you know, and the people are achieving these things um, drug free, which is great. Yeah, uh, just through through better IP. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that that last factor too is just just huge, and I, and I can't agree more. I do think the depth is becoming better because it's like all like the individual situations are able to be trained better than they were in the past. Yeah, and... yeah. yeah, totally. It's good. Yeah, so so kind of uh, piggybacking off that question, uh, and it's, this is almost in essence in a way like. The difference between maybe doing like the the isometric strength or super maximal strength based work in a rack, a safety rack, versus like a single leg single leg depth jump training. Um, yeah. But what's your thought on the interchange uh, between uh, like a super maximal eccentric work and plyometrics? And is there situations where you would look for one or the other, or is there a progression between one or the other in particular athletes who need stiffness? Yeah, it's actually a good question, and I, I think um, look. I'm still learning in the space too, so I would say that you know, arguably both of them will impact stiffness positively. Um, so, but in that aspect, they might be interchangeable, um, but they are still pretty different. I think bios <clears throat> um, will train the stretch shortening cycle and the motor control strategies around that, and and even within stretch shortening stuff, we know that there's a real specificity between long and short, um, and transfer isn't always great, and um, so you know, so in terms of ground contact time. If you're good at power bounding, it doesn't necessarily mean you'd be a great sprinter. Um, it just means you're good at power bounding. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, players will, will help that force generation, the elastic qualities, um, and, and stiffness. And, and I, I've been listening to a little bit of um, Keith Barr's work. I don't know if you've come across his stuff, but um, he's a you know, very smart scientist who's done a lot of this stuff with tendon health and uh you know, muscle adaptation, the mTOR, and, and he's yeah being big on the gelatin and the use of that for, for tendon uh, adaptation and stuff. And he would he's his stuff would argue, you know, that the plyos might be the sort of um, uh, reactive stuff, which will really develop tendon stiffness. Um, whereas the longer 
um, slower contractions might um, they'll still develop some stiffness, but they might actually um, work through um, a little bit more compliance as well. So, so you know, you're breaking some of the the, the, uh, the bonds and, and uh, rather than just having the sort of reactive stiffness of the, the, these interlinking uh, fibers. So, look, um, I, I think so. So to summarise that, the, the plyo stuff, I think. Um, yes, we'll, it, it will address stiffness. Yes, it will um, train the, the stretch shortening cycle and motor control strategies. Um, the difference, I guess, is the eccentric stuff, you, you can um, do other things as well. And so we know, uh, and, and it's not to say pliers doesn't do this, we just probably don't have the data that shows it. Um, there's certainly some stuff, a couple of papers that show data that, that you can use high-speed eccentric work to change the morphology of the muscle towards a faster isoform. So you're more, yeah. Fast contracting um, protein in the muscle, um, which which is which is great. So perhaps if I was going to periodize it, I might be doing you know some eccentric, super maximal eccentric work, maybe with some isometric work uh, initially. Um, so I think they marry in quite well together in terms of you know addressing some of those um, tendon properties. Uh, then moving, and you could do it in conjunction with you know a small amount of pliers, um, and then you might morph towards faster eccentric work and then morph towards more plyometric dominant work but probably you'd keep a little bit of each element and throughout um and so i think you know that that if you, we know that you may be able to well we know we think um who knows it's all always um what do we know i'm not sure um <laughs> but we think you can address the, the muscle morphology with with the eccentric training you can probably um set yourself up for some of these dramatic plyo stuff by actually the ability to develop eccentric strength um and I think in terms of risk, degree of risk, there might be less risk in that for somebody initially going slow eccentrics, overloaded, incrementally developing that, that sort of uh, integrity of the, of the muscle and tendon unit, um, and then moving towards the plyos later on, which might be more specific. And then, you know, obviously sprinting might be your, your final plyometric. Your, and again, you wouldn't do none of it early, but um, yeah, you'd, you'd morph towards that. Yeah, well, hey, I think that's a good way of putting it. I think that like you kind of even said uh, early on like I I don't think there's anyone right now that I've ever talked to who really has those two in these perfect buckets you know on exactly what they do and exactly yeah. when to use them I, I think we're still learning us a whole lot and I I really like the way that you would put that together I, I had asked that too I'd actually asked uh, Dan Fichter on a prior podcast kind of about that and where um, he had kind of stuck with uh, plyometrics in favor of it which is my has been my stance lately just because i feel like i haven't learned enough about the method and done it myself enough to you know feel comfortable that's part of the reason i'm asking you guys these questions as well uh just to learn a little bit more about the sequence sort of think about this out loud i think out loud a little bit i mean there's also the impact the, the idea that um some people can't don't tolerate that eccentric stuff oh, sorry the um the plyometric stuff all that easily and they might have you know some congenital reason for for not doing it and i, and I sort of I remember reading, um, I think it was in New Studies in Athletics way back in the day. There was, a, there was a, some, you've probably read it, stuff on Jonathan Edwards, um, his head of training diary that was, that was in, in there. And, and I don't think they specified exactly what he, but he was told by the orthopedic surgeon, you know, you jump something, you know, your body's going to break. It might mean something, actually, or whatever it was. Um, uh, scoliosis, I have no idea, actually, I'm just making that up. But uh, there was some issue, some orthopedic issue. So, so instead of, and so he couldn't, he didn't do boat loads of plyometrics like most, um, triple jumpers you think would do it and he found a different way of answering the question and you know, he did it by getting you know silly strong you know this was a 74 kilo guy tackling more than twice body weight and so that gave him these these eccentric qualities uh, and, and you know again in hindsight there might have been better ways of doing it again maybe he was an 1850 triple jumper had he done um you know uh, but, you know that's historical fact that he didn't do that plyometric he did he did a lot of strength work instead and uh, you know obviously uh, had a remarkable career um so yeah kind of interesting so this yeah horses for courses um you would you would you would decide on your protocol and your and your training basis on what they can and can't cope with um and some will do more and yeah another one would be you know i went with some throw athletes and um to do truckloads of plyometrics when you weigh 130 kgs mm -hmm. you know, 300 odd pounds or whatever it's pretty hard on the body because uh, those impact forces are huge whereas we can control it um more in an eccentric fashion with some overloaded work. 
Yeah, I like the I like the Jonathan Edwards uh, example, uh, especially too. I mean, obviously someone who's so successful, but it seems like the more I uh, track people I talk to and the more anecdotes I get, it's it's like so many great performances and PRs always come out of I got hurt, I got sick, I had to do yeah, something yeah. else, yeah. and and just like the thought yeah. of too, like if you've been doing plyos for twenty years or ten years or whatever. It, yeah. You know, super maxwell is probably going to give you good results because it's a different way of if you didn't do any plows and just did super max you'd probably do well with it like you just variation and yeah and, and you have those those motor patterns from the from the 20 years of plows in the system so then you change the stimulus to get a bit more adaptation in a slightly different fashion and you can you can still use that motor program you've got because you've done it for 20 years and yeah you probably will improve um so yeah i think there's a lot to be said for a little bit of um variation certainly um that's been one of the changes I've made in the way I've been periodizing the last year is, is more frequent variation. And, um, and you know, I think it's, it's just interesting because there's so many people, you know, <clears throat> you listen to different people's takes on that and uh, everybody does it differently. Um, there's no right or wrong, you know, um, but there probably is a right or wrong for a given athlete. And, and sometimes you get lucky with the way you program works well for an athlete and, you know, it doesn't make you a great coach. It just means you're lucky. You know, like, mm-hmm. yes. we all get lucky a lot of time. And probably the same program doesn't work for another athlete. And, and then you need to, you know, the great coaches have that intuition to, to, to change that probably quicker than I do. And, and and they get there quicker. And so, you know, we we're all learning and uh, yeah, hoping to, to get to, a, to that mastery stage at some point. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, speaking of what you just said too, I. I'd really love to get into I, my next question was actually a little bit about um, kind of breaking down how long you can do eccentric work and dosage and but actually I would like if you could follow up a little bit on kind of some of the recent ways you've been tweaking the work and, and periodizing it and changing it I'd be fascinated in that uh, and how you're how you're kind of changing the stimulus over the year yeah well I guess I guess I used to be well I still do this with some development they're still using more of a sort of relatively straightforward block Type periodization, um, and I just think you get to a point where you, you have a few weeks of the same stimulus, and, and you get stale, as we've, we've all seen. And I was listening to um, actually Louis Simmons' podcast. I don't even remember who it was with, but it was some. You know, Louis Simmons was was talking about their, their system, and, um, and you know, I've been aware of that stuff for, for, for years and years, um, and I played with it. Um, but but one of the things that he struck home to me was his, his comment on uh, as people get more advanced. Um, you know, they, they instead of changing, um, you know, they have a max effort day or whatever, and they change the max effort exercise every week um, because they get stale. And great, you know, that that's, makes a lot of sense, and I totally get that. And it, but a developmental athlete might stick on the same max effort exercise for three weeks. Okay, cool. Um, so I started thinking about well, what would happen if you um, change the whole paradigm every week, and you change, you know, instead of having three, four week, six week blocks. You had one week blocks, and then you repeated that, you know, and you, and you multiplied that over, and that's what I've been playing with. So I've been doing essentially a, um, a four week block on on repeat um, with a different block each week um, within that subset of that. And uh, hey, look, with some athletes it's worked great; others they feel like they don't get enough time on a, on a stimulus, huh. and then, you know. Um, so yeah, of course, of course, it's not it's not right or wrong, but it's but I think in terms of a seat, a developed athlete, change the stimulus regular basis is, is a good thing, and that's probably what I've moved more towards uh, in the last year or two, or year probably. Um, and some some people it's worked really well for, and I've been quite astounded at the changes we've got uh, in a you know, six month period for for senior athletes that are already at a world level. So it's been cool. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I've been, I've been thinking a lot too about just the idea of yeah, the changing the block every week. From it was she was back when I was twenty one. I was listening to someone at, that was the first seminar I ever went to. Is like perform better something or other, and and the guy is literally like this guy comes in. And he's like I do. We don't repeat the same workout for like forty days or something. And he's like, here's all these great gains we made, and I, and I, and I was like, I was like, really? Like, how could you do? Like, but I, I think something that was more practical was I had Walt Klein on about 20 episodes ago, and he was talking about like a four week block with each week having a different emphasis, like kind of like what you were just saying, like the first yeah. week being a maybe a max strength, the next week being, the first week being hypertrophy, second week strength, and the next week power, next week kind of an unloader, or at least tilted towards that, and that's been yeah. an interesting thought for me. I. I I, I, I even as older athletes too, like they adapt so fast. I was writing about 
I just kind of was messing around about six weeks ago and went out to the track with an intern and just did this crazy workout. We just did a bunch of like kettlebell springs and dropped the kettlebell and sprinted. And then we did goblet squats and sprinted at the stadiums. And I felt so good. The next day I was jumping like higher than I jumped in months. And it was just this new stimulus. But then by the yeah, second or third yeah. time I'd done the workout, I already kind of adapted to it a little bit. Like I wasn't getting that anymore. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's and, I, and I don't know whether, it, you know, <clears throat> I've listened to some of the stuff you, you had, uh, Christian Thibodeau, that's how you pronounce it, yeah. neurotyping stuff. And I, look, look I, I'll be honest, I'm a bit of a skeptic that you can define everybody in five different personality types. It sounds, um, but, but hey, look, I'm sure there's some, some real valid stuff in there. Uh, and, but, you know, and it, and it might be, and in his, in his setup, that it, you might be have somebody that's, um, one neurotype likes that rapid change all the time, and, and that's I'm sure he would he would say that, you know, and he's probably right. Um, and he knows a lot more about that stuff than I do. So you know, my skepticism is, is probably based on ignorance as well. So, um, but it, it seems like um, yeah, you need to find what works for an athlete, and some of them. Will, and, and, and the athletes, I think, as they get older, need to be um, actively engaged and, and be excited about their program. You know, they need to be going. Hey, well, I want to try this, and yeah, okay, we can do that. We can morph this, and it becomes a it's a collaboration rather than a you know, dictatorship, which you might have with a sixteen year old. You might be just saying, "Get to do this, this, and this." Um, so, yeah, I think um, people probably do morph towards what they like, and, and, and sometimes they need to do that. But also, sometimes they need to do the shit they don't like, and, and really um, adapt and, and move on. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I know. I I had done some work with uh, fiber typing and, and genetic, or not fiber typing, genetic typing, and I, I yeah. paid to get the test or whatever. And I I have the gene for like the the high novelty seeking, and it's like I I have those athletes I know have that too for sure, and I feel like they would be the ones as well who would love that very yeah. you know different block, and I think I would do really well in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's more to it than that, but. Um, that's that's been something that I've kind of thought about a little bit too. In, in addition with the neurotyping, the different the types there and how that fits in. Yeah, and, and it's, it's kind of interesting. Like people, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. There's a certain amount of skepticism around. Well, if I don't do this exercise, how am I going to improve on it? You're only doing it once every four or five weeks. <clears throat> I understand that, um, but what we've found is, well, if you get generically better, you'd be doing that exercise for X number of years. That'll come up too, you know, and, and it does, and that's been quite a bit, quite of a, um, an eye opener for some of our athletes. That, oh look, look at that, I haven't done, you know, let's say power cleans or whatever it might be, and I've just done a PV, you know, which has been stuck on that PV for five years, three years, whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting aspect of the field. It makes it a lot more fun too. Maybe confusing sometimes <laughs> we rack our brains, but it makes it fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you still have to have a plan. And, and like, I wouldn't go through the whole season like that. I would do yeah. that as a preparatory block of maybe, you know, four lots of four weeks in a sixteen-week block, or something like that, maybe, or or twelve weeks or whatever you however you got to figure it out. Um, uh, and then you might still have a traditional um, you know, in-season maintenance type comp prep, whatever um, approach from there. So. But yeah, who's, who's to say uh, everybody's got their own ways of cutting it, didn't they? So um, that's, that's what we've played with anyway. Yeah. Well, it, regardless, it's it's great to hear kind of how you had just said, like some athletes responded well, some didn't, because you'll get like people like that, that at that seminar that I went to when I was 21 who shows up and is like, we do something different every day, and here's some results. But yeah. that's only part of the story. Maybe it worked well for, you know, maybe there was a lot of people who could have done better on a different program. And maybe for a couple of people, that was the best that they, you know, could have done. So, yeah, yeah exactly. So, hard to say. Yeah. I, I love that stuff. Uh, so, fiber type two, that's something I wanted to get to. And you had alluded to it a little bit with this, the super maximal and, and the, its effect on that. But what's your take on an athlete's uh, fiber type or estimated <clears throat> fiber type percentage um, and how? you might train based off that. So if you uh, have an estimate of what they might are, or might be, um, is that, does that play into uh, your, your training program? <clears throat> um, yes and no, I guess like everybody, um, you know, I work, I work only in power events now. Um, so I'm not really <clears throat> after fatigue resilience. 
Um, so everybody, we're trying to morph them towards a, a faster, faster muscle, even if they are, you know, really, really twitchy already. Um, so, so yeah, do I train somebody with, with um, yeah, slow twitch uh, dominance uh, differently? Not necessarily. I might a little bit, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I, yeah. I might really emphasise that. Um, you know, not going to the fatigue and the grinding stuff. Um, you know, the, the, with that athlete more so than somebody that's you know just jumping out of the gym, explosive as hell. Um, you know, perhaps got insulin resistance, and you know that gives you shift towards fast twitch muscle as well. And um, you know, so so yes, yes, maybe. Um, but for the most part. You know, with everybody, you're trying to go towards this, um, um, you know, sort of faster isoform. And with that in mind, I think there are things like um, we know, we've talked about fast eccentric work. We know um, rest is another one where you can um, you know, throw more rest in. You're probably going to get less um, down regulation of fast switch muscle. I mean, I, I guess that's, that's, the, that's the other point is, uh, you know, when I was, you know, um, studying originally, and, and we were sort of told there's you, there's this immutable characteristic of fiber type that was didn't change, and you you know you had what you had, and you know that was that. And since then, there's been more and more stuff come out, and, and we know that if you if you you know, you know heaven forbid you break your back and you you've got you've got you're disabled from the from the the, the legs down within 12 months, you'll be nearly 100% fast twitch you know 2B muscle in your quads uh, or wherever they biopsy. Um, in that denervated area of the body, and so to me that says we are plastic. It's, it's completely plastic. You know, the side type can change. <clears throat> it's just that some people are more um, resilient towards maintaining their fiber populations than others, and that might be what talent is. You know, that might be that for in a fast twitch event, and you can do all the work and you get strong and train hard and do all that stuff, and you're still really fast twitch. And certainly, I think that is the case with some athletes that they have this. Um, resilience to training that it, they don't downregulate the same way as the next person might and so so that's that's kind of interesting um so but yeah i'm not i'm probably i'm waffling now but there is a um yeah there is there is a change that's available but how you do it um will depend on, on the situation to a certain extent and, and the athlete you have in front of you so, so for example we had a, i had a guy um that i did a little bit of work with back in the day who was a you know um He's the only guy that he'd run, he ran 10 I think. Uh, so he's pretty quick. And he could, he, could, he, could, he could train him quite hard and he would still be really explosive. Uh, whereas some of the, his peers in his training group, you do heaps of strength work and they, they, would, they would not be explosive because they'd hmm. just be cooked and or downregulating that fast-twitch yeah. muscle. So that was a certain talent that he had, I would say, uh, in that space. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Like, yeah, it's like athletes who, no matter what you throw at them, they're still going to be able to keep that pretty well. I, I almost was thinking about it in terms of detraining too. Like I know, like for me, if I don't sprint or jump for a while or be explosive, I, I lose so fast. Like, like I feel like faster yeah. than everybody else. Like it's like it's like crazy. I, yeah. I, it's like reverse. I don't know how that works into it, but yeah, yeah, and I think that's true. I think there are some people that detrain faster than others, and and certainly, um, and whether it's that you're a, you become a very uh, yeah, whether that's a fiber type thing, which I doubt, I think it's more like a, it's more likely that you're a really fascial animal, and and so you 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 lose a bit of um, tension and tightness in your in your in your system, and so you become kind of floppy, for want of a better word, would be my guess with the people that do that really quickly. And so so they don't um, all of a sudden you don't bounce very well, and so then you then you feel like oh, and and maybe it relates to you know the whole the Franz Bosch muscle slack concept. You know, perhaps, um, and, and you develop the slack that, that you didn't uh, have. Whereas other people, um, you know, they you get them to sit down and do nothing for two weeks, and they absolutely go off. You know, they come out of that and they're doing PVs out of yin yang. On, on, you know, they just so that they're doing everything goes off, and they do, you know, personal bests and this, that, and the other uh, straight after an illness or or whatever, uh, as you should have mentioned before. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think that really rapid detraining, as you call it. Um, is necessarily a function of muscle and this is just gut feeling rather than mm-hmm. anything super scientific but i think it's a loss of, of tension in, in, in the spring and in the, in the, in the maybe the fascia um and, and that's my gut feeling because i think the muscle for most people um would be moving towards the right direction um and and or if you detrain and your your strength reserve isn't very high 
um, you can get below the strength reserve needed to produce these power qualities, and then you've got a problem too. So, uh, yeah, lots of answers to that, I suppose. Oh, yeah, a lot, a lot of different ways to get to that. But no, you're you're probably right out with me in the fascial driven thing. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's the main engine that I run on. So, and, w- and it would tie in with what you said earlier that you did that sort of, um, you know, almost, you know, crossfitty volume type stimulus, and that probably gave you some tension in the spring. And the next day, you're jumping out of the gym. Well, yeah, I, you're probably a guy that needs a little bit of a little bit of load to get that that um, that tone, and and then you know certainly. Yeah, you know, again, I've had athletes in that space that, that you know you need to work them through into a competition, and others that work them through into a competition that they're cooked, and you, you need to back them off, you know, dramatically from two or three weeks out, and they you know, do a lot of sitting on their ass and uh, <laughs> yeah, reading books or watch play PlayStation or whatever they do, and uh, yeah, then they, they come out and just go berserk. That makes perfect sense. I, that's crazy. I, I it's amazing. I never really. I never really thought of it in those exact terms, but it makes all the sense in the world. I know, um, like one of the best track meets I ever had was the coach just randomly decided to have us run really fast 200s on a Thursday. Me was on a Saturday. I wore spikes and just blasted the 200s on on fairly short rest, really fast, and was jumping probably the highest I ever. My calves were so sore though I could barely even move. But despite all that, I was still. The highest I'd ever been over over six eleven. There's a vi- there's a picture. I was like, man, I was just it's too bad my calves hurt so bad. But yeah, I've always operated like that. Are we just playing basketball? I'm trying I'm not trying to steer this podcast into Joel's personal. You know, how can I be the most athletic? That's why I'm getting at you guys. No, that's well, you know, we know ourselves better than anything else, and, and that that stuff is. You know, was I'm the opposite. I'm this naturally very tight person, and when I rested, <clears throat> I probably got a little bit more compliance, and and, and probably you know that I, I'm, I was. I had a stress fracture come out on a stress fracture. I'll be going off six six weeks off doing no, no no real work, and on happy days I'm good to go. Um, so yeah, interesting. Yeah, it even takes me into like Randy Huntington's episode just came out. He's working with sprinters and jumpers over in China and 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 getting some amazing. He's doing, he's doing some great work there, isn't he? Yeah, he's, his guys are doing pretty good. It's <laughs> he was saying how uh, his sprinters, the real the super fast twitch sprinters, tend to be mm-hmm. a three day a week. Where they get a little more rest in between each day, where the jumper—if you're more of a jumper type—you have four days, uh, where you have a little rest in between each day. So maybe that's it too, because if you're a jumper, you're maybe more fascially driven, less rest. Yeah. Like, you know, same same deal on a micro scale. It makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. Well, hey, uh, next question. Uh, so, kind of talking a little bit in, into um, what's your use, or when do you find a, uh, or when do you decide to use uh, like velocity-based training, tendos, gym aware. Uh, tagging the bar with speed uh, when athletes are in the weight room. Uh, what are some principles and protocols you go to there? So, so that's you know, to be fair, I've probably been something of a late engager with that, but but have engaged it now. And look, I think it relates again to that stuff um, we've just been talking about. That, and as far as uh, if you're trying to do, we know there's a couple of papers that came out. Um, you know, I think Pablo Blanco 2016 paper with something like. 20% drop off in speed versus 40% drop off in speed, and they showed that if you you limit the drop off in speed of your if you're doing a set uh, to 20%, uh, you don't decrease fast which five percent. This is from a you know, legit biopsy study. Uh, whereas if you do go to 40%, so you're grinding reps at the end of a set, then perhaps you, know, you are compromising fiber type. And to me, that makes quite good sense. So so we we've sort of set some some targets for that. We're putting a block where. Um, you know, we're working with a you know, power speed athlete. Um, let's not try and um, depress fiber type. So, you know, you set a, set a tight margin, 10% drop off, 20% drop off, whatever, uh, something in that, in that range. And many reps, you, you can rep, keep repping until, until we say stop. And, you know, it usually doesn't, for the real fast switch guys, it's not very many reps anyway, depending on the load you're using. Um, so, but I think, I find it, you know, it's highly motivating too. If you're just, if you're calling out rep speed, you know, it's got a case stay over, you know, X meters per second, and you're calling out speed. It's going to be over one, over 1.5, and you're 1.6, 1.58, 1.58. Stop. You know, and whatever it is, and they, they basically PVs in terms of how many reps they can do at X weight with X speed, um, and it becomes more focused on the speed than necessarily uh, just grinding away at, at trying to do a strength PV, which you know, as, as we know, strength is you know, reasonably specific to the velocity velocity you, you do it at, and um, you're a you know, javelin thrower or a shot putter or anybody, you're still moving your, 
your joints at extremely high speed at release velocity under the AU2 and um, grinding a bench press at you know 0.3 of a meter per second is probably of limited relevance to even a shot putter. Um, so yeah, it's just essentially yeah. So I have been using it in that fashion, uh, and I, I think you know I'll continue to, to grow in, in my use of it. But I'm certainly um, intrigued at the value it offers there in terms of maintaining bike type and and all performance. Yeah, sure thing. I, I had heard about the the twenty and forty percent thing, and I in the past, and I my thought was like, wow, like twenty percent seems kind of like a lot. Like that seems like a a lot slower, and you're still maintaining it. So I'm like, well, that's cool. You have yeah. a little bit of a cushion there. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's still twenty um, percent is quite a lot slower. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, uh, and, and certainly you can even characterize athletes by what percentage, the, how much they drop off. You know, if you go from one RM to eighty percent. How many, how many reps you can do it above a given speed at 80 percent yeah certainly big differences between mm-hmm. athletes you know dramatic um so which is quite cool we yeah. watched i've got some of the kayak i don't work with kayak but some of the kayak athletes in sea training they can they can grind all day at 85 percent they'll probably do 20 20 reps you know like, it's amazing um, yeah quite cool yeah, I think it was it was in block periodization or something where like how slow twitch those athletes are. I, I heard some Russian talk on how they were trying to increase the slow twitch in those kayakers, and I was like, that was the first I ever heard of like, you want to increase your slow twitch? I was like, what? But they were like, that was like their goal in this Russian. I I forget if it was Selinev or Valnesedkin and one of those guys. They were talking about that, and that was yeah, it was that was crazy, but. Uh, that's a yeah. just another good thing for coaches to keep in mind too on the differences in athletes and just more good information to how quickly you drop yeah. off. Yeah, so it's just another assessment tool, isn't it? That you, you might find, um, yeah, you might morph that as, as they develop, that that might change as well. So it's cool. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Angus, uh, thoughts on the use of cluster training in weightlifting? Uh, is that something that you use commonly with your athletes? Cluster uh, weight training? No, not haven't used it a lot, um, but have been used, talking about it a lot and, and sort of a little bit again in the same space that you know, and, and that you know, you talked about doing a, um, you know, perhaps doing a, you know, high bridge free back strength, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If you were doing a, in that fashion in those short blocks, you might and you wanted to do high bridge free without. Um, and we know high pitch, we try to generally down-regulate our fastest muscle. Um, maybe the cluster training offers a good option um, for, for essentially doing exactly what the, the BBT stuff is showing us, that you keep the speed, you still do a lot of volume, but you keep the speed by having, you, know, you might do sets of three with 15 second rests and a, and a set, of, set of nine reps or whatever it might be, three sets of three. Um, might be, so the, you're getting the volume in, but you're not doing this really crappy rep quality where you just do the slow grinding stuff. Um, so look, I think it's got a lot to offer, um, and you know, high pitch by high pitch be adaptations with that loss of contractile speed and quality um, for, the, for, the, for the populations I work with. Yeah, there's that's it's a great um, tool that can be used in that space. I think. Yeah, in terms of uh, in terms of barbell work too for speed and power athletes, and uh, how often are you going higher than five reps in a set for these guys? And we talk <laughs> about velocity decrement a little bit. Uh, so with everything kind of in mind that you've just talked about, uh, how much space is there for the, the reps higher than that in, in what you're doing? Or maybe even a similar time under tension construct? Um, not much, to be honest. Um, and it's not to say never say never, um, but we do very little um, in that, that sort of high rep range, particularly if they're a senior athlete with you know, the right anthropometry already. Um, they're already big enough and ugly enough to, to do what they need to do. Then, then um yeah, we yeah, and we might have one day in the week where we do a little bit more volume stuff, but that might be you know fives or sixes um, on that one day in terms of reps. But yeah, you don't see. I'm never prescribing fifteens uh, or twenties or anything like that. Um, and it's it's not to say there's there's not value in that. I, I just it's just not in my toolkit at the moment. And and I I have been intrigued by you know seeing how strong some of these CrossFit athletes get, uh, and certainly they do you know, boatloads of reps. Mm-hmm. Um, they're strong, but are they explosive? Would be my next question, though. Like, and that's not the wheelhouse. I don't want strong. I want strong and explosive. Um, so, um, until I find a rationale for, for, for going there, um, haven't done a lot in that space. Um, you might have an athlete that, that needs it, uh, and you might have identified um, you know, a weak link in the chain that, that might need a bit of work, and it might be a relatively slow twitch muscle that you want to address. It might be a postural muscle, that, and they're losing. It might be 
team right there. Something that's in, in that space, well, you might do it then. Um, but in terms of the global movements that are that are power orientated, no, I don't don't really see the value. Yeah, yeah. Those I've thought about that myself. Like those CrossFit athletes can get really strong. I know they're oh, not amazing. they're not very good at running though. <laughs> Their running is uh, form wise yeah. terrible. So yeah. I, I don't know what kind of indicator that's always distance running with them. Like they you know however many miles is part of what they do. But I would imagine yeah. their speed and jumping is not you know truly that great. No, I, I wouldn't think so. I, I sort of um, I have an image in my mind is that when I was still training myself. Uh, at a reasonably decent level with watching a bodybuilder come and do it. We had some inter-faculty competition and there's a bodybuilder from, from you know, um, randomly enough, the pharmacy uh, faculty. Um, so you do the maths on that one. He um, was trying to do an overhead shot put throw and I was, yeah, this guy was huge. He was probably you know, six foot two and you know, 140 kilos bodybuilder, huge guy, 300 pounds in, in the New York language. And, uh, yeah, it was pitiful. It did, did like an eleven meter overhead with a with a seven k shot, and that was like, oh wow, um, just couldn't move quickly. So, yeah, and, and that you know that's the natural extension of that that question, I suppose that that um, you know high reps reps to failure, um, you become this big grinding giant, but perhaps not all that um, useful in a um, in a performance modality. Yeah, I agree. It takes you back to I remember I watched. Uh, one of my former coworkers was in a little CrossFit competition uh, about you know, 45 minutes north of here. And what, it was like they started with a four-mile run, did a few strength wads or whatever, and then they ran a 100-meter dash. Like that was part of the competition. I was like, oh, oh yeah. how many hamstrings are we going to see fall off here? You know, like, And they ran it yeah. like three times. It was like an elimination round. And I only think two people pulled their hamstring, which I actually think is miraculous. Like, but yeah, yeah. It, I, mean, I, I feel like their bodies like were just like down regulating automatically to keep themselves healthy or something but it was that was yeah they're probably ru- probably running them in 14 seconds anyway so the, the risk might have been reasonably really low so yeah who knows yeah that was that was crazy i was definitely afraid there for a minute <laughs> um yeah so uh, last question uh, I got for you, Angus, is uh, just thoughts on um, an EMS training electro-stim uh, for the purpose of increased rate of force development. Uh, thoughts thoughts on that training concept? Yeah, look, I, I think it, you know, theoretically it makes a lot of sense. And look, I've played with it uh, a little bit. Um, had, a, had, a, had a rower actually several years ago where we tried it uh, who was um, – Great endurance-wise, not so explosive, and we did through EMS on top of his normal training program. You know, because there's that whole concept of um, preferential recruitment of fast switch muscle with, with EMS, um, and it's and it's on the basis of you know where the where the um, the electrode um, sending out the current into the, into the muscle, where you're actually depolarizing the motor neurons in that you know, proximity. And the bigger the motor neurons are, the more easy to depolarize they are. The bigger ones are typically the fast switch motor units, et cetera, et cetera. So you get reverse order recruitment, you know, the opposite of the sort of the Hendon size principle. <clears throat> now, it's, it's not entirely true because you also, yeah, it's, it's, you know, in close proximity, the electrode will be depolarized, even the smaller uh, motor neurons. There's something in that. So in that space, yeah, that's logically it makes sense. Um, and there are a couple of um, papers that sort of got me interested originally. Uh, there's a Delisso paper, well, there's a case study, and I think it's 1989, Delisso et al. Uh, they, they had an Olympic level Olympic weightlifter, and they showed this data from you know, these blocks of electrical stim stuff in there. And, and yeah, this was a, a guy that was you know, obviously pretty pretty good and strong, and he, he uh, was doing yeah, dramatic gains when he was doing EMS at, at sort of probably extremely high currents. He was getting, it was just an MBC league extension, I think, uh, or, or sorry, an isometric stimulation, and he was getting numbers that were beyond his MBC from memory. Um, so the electrical stem was you know, allowing him to drive his muscle hard, but it's voluntary stuff, but so kind of intriguing. And certainly he seemed to progress every time he did it. And then, yeah, we don't do two or three week blocks, I think, from memory, and then maybe six weeks training without it, another week. The problem with it is it's at that sort of intensity it's it's quite um quite draining and the rower i was talking about uh, that i used it on yeah we would, we followed that sort of same sort of protocol at the end of the two weeks you know like he's coming out and he's breaking into a sort of uh you know sympathetic sweat before he puts the electrodes on because he knows how uncomfortable it's going to be 
Um, and, and it was, yeah, it was brutal, brutal. But he, every time he did it, he got an improvement in his vertical jump, which was kind of cool. And it, albeit uh, his vertical jump was pretty mud to start with, and it didn't, um, yeah, and it wasn't, he wasn't, you know, going to be dunking anytime soon or reversed, but it, but it improved every time he did it by, by a centimetre or two. So look, I think there is something in it. Um, <clears throat> with elite power athletes, um, that, that Delito paper was certainly pretty dramatic. There's, there's another paper um, which, I, which I dug up recently, um, Slinkus or something like that. It's, it's uh, I think a Lithuanian paper, and they used they used sprinters. Uh, it's a recent paper, 2017, and they use a sprint population in their in their dance. And they were national level guys, and they they showed gains in um, I think they, they simulated the foot and cart, uh, and they showed gains in in speed both. Um, zero to ten and flying ten meter wow. times, and, and the guys were decent. I think that um, they were under a second or just on you know on, on a second point nine nine or something like that in the, in the, for the main of the group um, by the second by the, by the post testing. So they were you know, ten meter per second guys. They weren't um, they weren't you know beginners by any stretch. Um, so the fact that those guys were getting adaptation you know bodes bodes well. Um, I, I guess you need to look at protocols and. Um, how are you doing it and why are you doing it? Um, but you know, have played with it a little bit more. What's the best stimulator? What's I don't really know. Like, um, we bought a couple of relatively cheap stimulators and, and ended up blowing them up after about a month, so um, so that wasn't much good. Uh, you know, I guess we've, we've you've seen the the art wave and that sort of stuff with um, you know, the the uh, Jay Schroeder and co. Uh, haven't used it, don't know what it's like. Um, you know, you can't find any information on you know, what the stimulation frequency is, what what the hertz, you know, what the, um, the current going through it. Seems to be very uh, cloak and dagger, which always worries me. Um, but obviously, they feel they've got some IP there that uh, that is that's worth protecting, and yeah, good luck to them. Um, but haven't used that sort of stuff, and there may be some further advantages there that uh, I'm totally unaware of. Yeah, well, it's it's great to hear a lot of those research ideas there, and I, you know, I, I for me, it's like I, I'm just trying to find the time myself to use it a lot before I would. Pre I think a lot of people who do prescribe it initially use it on themselves uh, from, yeah. you know, and and they got something good out of it. I'm still kind of waiting for that, but I feel like maybe I haven't done it complete justice either. But maybe being more fashionably driven, who who knows? You know, maybe it's different for me. Um, but it's yeah, I I was. I was thinking about. I, we, I yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I tried. I tried it. So with this, with this rower, I was doing it with the rower at the same time because we were both learning at the same time. And uh, you know, I, I tried it with a whole group of people, and certainly some people are responded to it, and some aren't. Like, I could get. If I was stimulating my quad. This is just with a complex, you know, pretty standard mm -hmm. complex stimulator. I was getting beyond my MVC with with a leg extension mm -hmm. um, with, with a complex stimulator, which is quite interesting. Whereas other people would get to thirty percent of their MVC. Um, and so some, you know, so if you're not getting a good, good um, output, my guess is your your muscle tension is one of the things which dictates adaptation. So I would say that maybe it's not your not your gig, and maybe I just had you know quite peripheral um, you know nerve endings or or, or um, that were actually accessible, so I did respond to it. But yeah, some of the, some of the others people I used on um, got almost nothing out of it. And interestingly, when I used it on people with an injury. You know, like if you had an ACL injury, um, you know how you actually quad atrophies within sort of 10 seconds of surgery, it seems like. <clears throat> they, they would get almost, you must get this, the dendrites of the, of the, the motor neurons must all sort of shrivel up and die a little bit from that stuff too because they, they, it was very hard to stimulate those guys. If you put a current on their good leg, and they'd be you know, almost hyperextending their knee, the, the tension would be so hard, and then you put it on their injured leg, it's the same current. And... Yeah, almost not even a contraction. It was bizarre that the, how that um, that we get neuroatrophy as well as um, you know the, the muscle atrophy. Uh, all seem to go hand in hand. So uh, yeah, got it. It's, it's really interesting, and I, I I would love to learn more about it, and I would love to know what the best simulator is and all that sort of stuff. But I uh, haven't got many great answers for you on that space. Yeah, there's so much to learn about the body, right? Like <laughs> there's only so much time and so many things. But I just the the what you have there it actually inspires me to think I, and, and even the, that sprint state it's like well and I've always kind of thought well if I just do my quads if all I have time for is my hamstrings and quads like I'm not really doing everything justice you know there's more muscles and sprinting I need to do but but just yeah, that's right. yeah. like 
like you're saying with the guy whose feet were a little bit softer, that sprinter who was the ten seven sprinter guy, and that yeah. sprint study, I was like, well, that's a real si- it. It is really simple just to do calves and gastrox or whatever. Like that would be a simple place to start and kind of see what happens. So it's kind of yeah, cool. We could, we could have done a lot worse. I, yeah, I look back at that exactly. You're right. That might have been a great great stimulus. Put someone pads at the bottom of his feet. Put someone on his calves and um, yeah, all that sort of tricep zero area, and, and you'd be uh, certainly we would be better off than we were. I'm sure. Yeah, I love it. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll run an experiment. I'll I'll put it in the show notes in a few months if uh, something happens of it. But uh, that sounds cool. Yeah. Awesome, yeah. Uh, inspiring information, uh, Angus. Uh, yeah, again, that's last of the questions I had today. But man, it, it's great talking to you. I just feel like I feel like you're inside my head on some of the stuff with like the fascial driven and the. Uh, it's just it's just so cool to hear um, about the work you're doing, your anecdotes, and, and your knowledge of the research. So, hey, thanks for being on. Thanks for coming back. I uh, really sure. appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. Pleasure. Cheers. Hey, thanks for tuning in for another episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did putting it together. Uh, just such cool information. Uh, from all these coaches and if you work with anyone who wants to get faster I can't imagine that you don't have tons of tools and ideas in your toolbox to make that happen and give athletes a better experience and help them to be the best they can be so uh, we'll be back next week with another great guest if you have a few minutes would really appreciate it if you took the time to leave us a rating or review on iTunes Stitcher or whatever you're listening on Um, it's the best way you can support us is just spreading the message of these coaches with as many uh, other coaches as possible who want to hear it and implement these training methods. So also, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, Freelap, GymAware, KBox, uh, Force Plates, EMS, and they have the best of in each training tech category. So check them out as well as their excellent blog. We'll see you guys next week.